Hey everyone, this is Dr. Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today, we have the finale of our special mini-series of episodes that were recorded at the 2019 ISSCR annual meeting back in June. We'll be talking to former podcast alumni, Dr. Justin Achita, who just had a big story himself, although we didn't talk about it at the meeting. We're going to talk to him about his thoughts on the meeting, as well as the one and only Dr. Irv Weissman, who's blowing up the world with all his science. We're talking to them about some of their recent research. We're also going to be hearing from some research trainees about their own work. But before we jump into that, did you know that this past June, Stem Cell Technologies hosted their annual Stem Selfie Contest? 20 stem cell images were selected for live voting on Facebook and Mary Heather Florido at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center was announced as the grand prize winner. However, stem cell received so many incredible submissions that they decided to feature all the stem selfies on their website for the whole world to see. Take a peek at the gallery at www.stemcell.com slash Stem cell FIE, that's stem selfie. Getting back to today's show, we have a special treat today for our listeners. When I was at the ISSCR annual meeting back in June, I had the pleasure of talking to a number of research trainees about their own research projects, and I was blown away by the passion that they had for their research. Everyone wanted to talk about their work, they were coming out of the woods. But as we all know, to really captivate an audience and get them hooked on your project, you need to be able to present your research clearly and succinctly, the so-called elevator talk. So today we're doing something a little different. Four trainees from the ISSCR annual meeting will be competing against one another for the most engaging pitch of their research. And to make things just a little more interesting, we're giving them only one minute each to do so. Now, this isn't easy, folks. To explain an entire project in only 60 seconds takes some quick thinking. And to make things even more interesting, you, our listeners, are going to be the judges. That's right. For the moment this episode airs until October 8th, 2019, we will be accepting votes on your favorite pitch through our Twitter channel, at Stem Cell Podcast. Just click on the tweet at the top of the page to submit your vote via Twitter poll. But let's not get to voting yet, guys. Let's hear their work first. Here the trainees give a one-minute breakdown of their research. We're going to start with Hannah Black, an undergraduate research assistant at the Broad CIRM Center at USC, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the meeting. Hannah, you're up first. Tell us about your research. Alrighty, well, in my lab, we study the kidney, and the kidney is an extremely important organ to study because, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the United States have kidney disease, and there's no way to treat it other than dialysis or a transplant. So what I do is I'm looking at the vasculature, and this is a really important thing within the kidney to study because uh, vascularizing organoids, a new way to study the kidney, um, is a real challenge that we've come up with. So I've been studying the vasculature in the kidney at single cell resolution using a massive single cell data set that we compiled from an adult kidney, from mouse adult kidney. Um, and I've been using Surat and a variety of other single cell uh, bioinformatics tools to learn about the transitions between you know, arterial to venous um, and within like the depth of the kidney. There's a lot of uh, hypoxia and osmolarity gradients. So I've been studying those gradients at single cell resolution in the kidney. Thank you, Hannah. Up next, we have Anarita Laitoguinito, 
a graduate student at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Anna, the clock is ticking. You have one minute to tell us about your work. I'm studying stem cells, obviously, and I'm studying blood developments and particularly leukemia. So what I'm interested in doing is we have seen that there's this particular gene that has been associated with acute myeloid leukemia, particularly in kids, and also in combination with other genes. So I'm just in the lab, have these inducible systems, so I can just use stem cells to model blood development. And then in the meantime, I can just activate the gene, overexpress the gene, uh, add some other genes in combination to that gene, see the synergy between different genes and see what it does. And then at the end, I'll get to see what kind of blood I'm making. Mm -hmm. If I'm making mature blood, less mature blood, more leukemic kind of blood. Mm -hmm. So that's how I'm using stem cells to model blood development. All right, moving on, we have Aaron Sandoval, another undergraduate student. But this time, we're getting one from the University of Florida Genetics Institute. Aaron, tell us about your research. So um, my lab at UF actually works on something called the African spiny mouse. Um, it's a really new model organism for a generation. Uh, my PI, Malcolm Maiden, dis discovered this uh, phenomenal organism uh, in 2012. He went to Kenya, and they heard inklings of a mouse that could regenerate skin. And that's exactly what they found. Uh, in the Nature study with, that they published, they showed that this African spiny mouse is able to regenerate skin scar-free. And the hair comes back, the cartilage comes back, fat comes back, it's fully functional hair. Uh, and this is one of the first and only examples of perfect skin regeneration in an adult uh, mammal. And we've been kind of taking it forward now, looking at other parts of the body, and we found that there's increased regenerative capacities in all the different kinds of tissues, including the muscle, which is what I study personally, um, but also the nervous tissue, cardiovascular tissue, um, after burn injuries. So there's a lot to do with this new model organism. Um, and there's colonies of spiny mouse now like popping up. And there's actually just one recently started here like at USC, um, which is really, really neat. So I'm really, really excited to see the future of this model organism going forward. Thank you, Aaron. Now, last but not least, we have Oriana Genelet, a graduate student at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Genetics in Berlin. Oriana, you have one minute. Tell us about your work. Um, so it's been known that several mammalian species, the females develop a bit later than the males. Um, and uh, so my PI in my lab found out that uh, in, in the mouse, if you take mouse uh, stem cells, um, the females are in a more naive state of pluripotency than the males. So they're a bit more back in development and they, um, and they also they differentiate slower than the males, just like in, in, in mammalian, early mammalian development. Um, so what I am doing, and this has several, um, let's say, phenotypes. For example, the female cells express higher pluripotency factors than the males. Um, like I said, they differentiate slower, and they have lower levels of the differentiating uh, MAP kinase signaling pathway. Okay. And so what I'm doing is I'm carrying out CRISPR knockout screens to find out which genes that are in a double dosage in the X chromosome, because that's a hypothesis, um, are actually responsible for the phenotype. And I've managed to do a list of several genes that are the hits. And that brings us to the end of our one-minute research breakdown competition. Now it's up to you guys to vote on your favorite. Visit at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter to cast your vote before October 8th, and you could help send Hannah, Aaron, Anna, or Oriana a nice little prize. We'll be announcing the winner on Twitter, of course, 
as well as on episode 153. So stay tuned. Moving on, we have some great conversations with researchers up next. But before we get to that, I have a little question for all of you. Do you do immunotherapy research? Stem Cell Technologies offers products and protocols for immunotherapy research, including T-cell isolation, activation, and expansion reagents. Use EasyStep T-cell isolation kits to isolate highly purified T-cells in as little as eight minutes. Wow. Follow up with Immunocult reagents designed for human T-cell activation and expansion. You can learn more about stem cells, optimized protocols, and reagents for immunotherapy research at www.stemcell.com slash T-cell-therapy. That's stemcell.com slash T-cell therapy with a dash in between the T and the C and in between the L and the T. I made that more confusing than it needed to be. All right, let's get into some conversations that we had with two researchers at the ISSCR annual meeting. My man, Dr. Justin Achita, who's an assistant professor at stem cell and regenerative medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. And I mean the man, Dr. Irv Weissman professor of pathology and developmental biology at Stanford University and the director of the Stanford Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. We hope you guys enjoy these conversations. I have the distinct pleasure of having an old friend and a repeat guest on the podcast with me now. He took a minute away from schmoozing <laughs> during the post session to talk about what his impression of the meeting is and just generally life stuff. Justin Achita, assistant professor at uh, USC, the Keck School of Medicine, big hitter, um, doing a lot of things. Uh, how's it going, my man? It's going great. It's going great. It's good to see you here. Wow. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. Tell me, what's your impression of the meeting so far? My impression of the meeting is, uh, you know, the remarkable progress that we've had is, is actually very impressive. So, mm. you know, you and I have been coming to this meeting since maybe 2008 <laughs> or nine, yeah. somewhere around there. And uh, back then, I think we were obsessed with, um, you know, reprogramming and IPS cells mm -hmm. at that time. I think there was, you know, a lot of skepticism that we would use it eventually for cell therapy and much less you know yeah for disease modeling even much less cell therapy mm. but you look at all the presentations today uh there are countless people actually going into humans now with um with cell transplants and a lot of disease modeling where you know they're these studies are you know using ips cells from patients to find new targets that are now making their way into clinical trials mm. so so the progress has been pretty staggering, I think. Yeah, and I think it, it's particularly impressive. It's great to talk to you because I feel like stem cells kind of what brought us into the game, right? Yeah. A yeah. lot of scientists that we look up to, they, they knew they love science. And then stem cells was like, oh, let's follow, you know, let's follow, not the money, but let's right. follow the, the possibilities. Right. But like, that, this is what brought us That's here. Right. And we were yeah. so obsessed, I get, like you said, first it was, how can we get these cells, right. you know? Can we get 
let's derive more, let's yeah. derive more, let's create a safe space for that with yeah. the whole, you know, sermon, all these things. And then it was IPS, okay. And then we start focusing on application. Yeah. How do you like make you said, yeah, cells? How do you that? make them? And I mean, then we did our how do we use them? Postdocs on just trying yes. to make some type of this cell. So, this is the recipe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was our contribution. I mean, yeah. you, you and I both yeah. hopefully continue to contribute. But I think, yeah, now I, I'm, I'm impressed like you is that we've come to the point now where all the stuff that you kind of, you, you promised and right. you claimed, but kind of you were like, yeah, it's easy to claim because yeah, five to 10 years, five to 10 years. Right. But now right. it's like, yeah, I said <laughs> that, you know, yeah. I knew that's why I got into it. And it's a real vindication, right? That, oh, that it's yeah. actually coming into play. So, and it's, it's interesting because uh, a lot of the people here at this meeting now are, we're not, um, pro probably not, you know, like, you and I, who just got, you know, we, we got our start in the stem cell field as scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people now that actually are studying the kidney or the heart mm -hmm. uh, or other, you know, uh, organ systems. And now, because of the power of the, of the technology, they're now coming into, you know, they, they're all adopting the use of stem cells. And they're here at the meeting now. Um, and so it's become much more of a, a mix of, it's, it's becoming much more differentiated, I guess, right? <laughs> like it's not, not just pluripotency anymore or, or directed differentiation. It's actual disease areas. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, it's you start with the problem and yeah. stem cells are just a tool, one tool yeah. in, in yeah. an arsenal, as it turns out, between yeah. the organoids and the single cell seek and all yeah. the genomics. So we're really harnessing the power of all these systems. What would you say is, is the most impressive you know, thing that you, what stands out for you in, in this this year's meeting? I actually liked the uh, like Carl Kohler's uh, hair on the back of the mouse. Yeah, it's You're hard not the to, only one. That You're was amazing. That was cool. <laughs> I have to say. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's a great. Cool. That that it's funny because no matter how far away you get, you yeah. know, and no matter how deep you get into like mechanism. You see hairs on the back of a mouse, and yeah. suddenly you get a little tingly. You're like, ah, it's yeah. real. It's yeah, real. It's like, I mean, there's nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's this necessarily called baldness of disease, but it was. Um, it's just really cool to see that. That's what's <laughs> ironic. Is it's like, I mean, look, we cannot downplay clinically. You know, there's a lot of uh, disease that centers yeah. around the hair and the yeah. skin, but like realistically, everyone's standing up clapping because they're secretly psyched that they're not yeah. going to be bald. But the, it's ironic that the non-life or death, or at least ostensibly non-life or death thing, is the one that captures the imagination. But I, actually, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go no, 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 please. Oh, no, the other thing that was uh, really remarkable to me was today we had um, one of our, our friends, uh, an ALS, ALS patient, Nancy Ryder, came mm -hmm. and uh, her team came and gave the patient advocate talk. No. Uh, I've known this woman for four three or four years now like when i first you know she's a she's based in hollywood she was a publicist for uh, a lot of well-known actors like you know michael j fox and mm -hmm. renee zellweger and she came to the lab maybe 2015 or so she had been diagnosed with als like that year or the year before and she could talk and write things down and now she's completely you know unable to do any of that yeah. But it's been a struggle for her and her team. Um, they've been really advocating for ALS research all, all of these years. They've raised like close to a million dollars for it. Um, 
and then she came up and went on stage and after the their talk like they got a standing ovation of everybody in the plenary hall mm. i think for her that was really special oh. I, I, don't, I don't know if i've ever seen that actually in, in any isscr bro i'm feeling it just hearing about it. yeah and you know all these scientists what's really neat about it is that this i think these this group of scientists here they they know why 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 they do this work and they they're really there to help ultimately help people with disease and they you know they, they they're just good people that do things for the right reason so it was that's a really great. nice moment at ISSCR. that's a great moment yeah. i mean yeah they do know i think we all know intellectually why we do it but it's nice to be reminded emotionally yeah why we do it and uh, i mean it's it's hard scientists yeah. i think we don't see enough of the, the clinic you know doctors will tell you they they, they think yeah. about the patient and of course we think about the patient but more in an abstract way that's beautiful i'm, I'm sorry i missed that yeah um oh it's the greatest moment of the meeting yeah, I no, i'm just kidding <laughs> no, that is look the, the human no. connection is real <laughs> well, it was it was pretty special <laughs> but it's not i mean obviously i guess it's it's different yeah. it's a different yeah. moment but we should have more of those moments yeah. along those lines you know the the whole focus with the the meeting this year was um the youth right yeah so it seems like the, that right. that maybe there's an appreciation amongst the executive committee that we can do better you know there's some things we need to integrate uh how do you think that's working out in terms of their mission Is it accomplished or or did you uh, see I it in so. this meeting did you feel that that the youth yeah. was showcased i think it's done um it was a it was a good thing to do i think it it definitely was a good step in that direction. I mean, they had uh, several young junior investigators or, you know, graduate students mm -hmm. uh, giving talks in the plenary sessions. Mm -hmm. And then some people that are normally in plenary sessions were give, like in concurrent <laughs> sessions, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Wait, I didn't know uh, they had reversed yeah, they that too. Wow, around. that yeah. is... It's pretty interesting. I, I like interesting. it. I like it. Um, I think, you know, at this point in the ISSCR, uh, ISSCR's like development is a good thing because it's now, I don't know, 15, I don't know, 10 or 15 years into it mm -hmm. or so. And a lot of the people that, um, senior people that have given plenaries in the past, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's refreshing to bring up new people mm -hmm. and uh, eventually, uh, yeah, the more, the more new people we can get, uh, excited about what they're doing I think the better mm -hmm. so yeah it's a good, a good change it's a great idea by the committee yeah. all right just in the last couple minutes here what's your uh, what's your big hope what are your dreams for the for the next year ISSCR this year organoid single cell seek I mean it's all great but it's yeah. like it's we can we're clearly on a wave who knows maybe yeah. it'll be a few years before it recedes but yeah. what do you think the next next thing that we're gonna break out with and 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 totally you know, reset our expectations for what's possible. I think we're gonna move towards like recreation of uh, two things, like recreation of more uh, of, I guess, whole organisms towards towards a whole organism mm -hmm. in a way. So like you know, multi-organ. Mm. Uh, the compound organoid. Yeah, yeah, the compound organoid. Uh, because there's a lot of things that we can't really understand from the like the neural organoids right now like the in interface with the immune system for example or the blood right so that kind of thing and then also i think i want to see how well we can do the cell transplantation i think we can we're just starting it in a few areas and 
uh, I think those are laying some groundwork for everybody else. But I think I'm gonna I, I'm gonna expect to see more of that going into the clinic next year and the next few years. Yeah. All right, you heard it from Justin. It is yeah. prime time, guys. We're living in it, and uh, it's gonna come in the form of disease modeling with the compound organoids. The compound organoids. And we're gonna get into people. I mean, we're gonna be careful though, of course, right? Yeah, we're gonna be careful. Like, you know, you wanna not have that setback, that, uh, or that gene, you know, the, yes, kind of the, the debacle therapy that, therapy thing. Yeah. that has put a mark on all the field. But I think, you know, this is being careful. It's been almost 20 years, right? So yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're, we're taking a measured approach. And I think we're, we're if not ready, you know, we're, we're close to ready yeah. to, to take the next step. Justin, yeah. thank you so much, my hey, man. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. Always a pleasure. Anytime. All right, you guys, we have the special pleasure and honor of having with us Dr. Herb Weissman. Uh, he's going to talk to us for about half an hour here at the meeting about his research, about the meeting, about his life, about it all, hopefully. I don't need to tell you this. But I will. Dr. Weissen, he's the director of the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine at the Ludwig Center at Stanford. His discoveries include, and you're going to have to wait and bear with me because there's a few, first isolation transplantation of pure hematopoietic stem cells uh, and human fetal brain cells, development of anti antibody-based conditioning for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation and tolerance induction, first demonstration in AML, CML, MDS, MPN, that the pre-leukemic mutations occur and expand in clones of HSCs, which is the last step give rise to leukemia stem cells. Also the discovery of LSC uh, on uh, leukemia stem cells of CD47 as a don't eat me signal used by cancers to evade. I mean, he's, getting, he's exhausted with the review of all his accomplishments, but I have to give at least one more. He also showed that this anti-CD47 blockade unleashes phagocytosis of cancer stem cells by macrophages. Now a successful cancer immunotherapy. And lastly, he is the grandson of a fur trader, okay? And if you wanna know how he's done all those things, it's because he started forming, performing uh, seminal experiments in high school. So, Dr. Weissman, thanks for joining us. Please, uh, you know, give us a brief review of what's your research focus right now. Well, right now, we're, we're looking at what we could learn from the blood forming or brain forming or leukemia forming stem cells. Because as you look at what genes they express, how they decide whether to self-renew or differentiate, you find new things all the time. One of the things that we've noticed over the last three years derives from this leukemia discovery first. So upon discovering leukemia stem cells in AML. Way back in 2000, we showed that those people who got acute leukemia in Hiroshima after the bomb had the chromosomal translocation induced by the radiation as a first step to lead to the leukemia. And the leukemia stem cells all had that first step in their chromosome. When they gave rise to downstream daughter cells trying to be like blood-forming progenitors, they lost the leukemogenicity. And so that means the leukemia stem cell and only the leukemia stem cell drives the disease. But we saw in every one of those patients, 
their normal blood-forming stem cells contained the translocation. And that's what led us to go stepwise through every leukemia we can see, and now we're doing it in brain cancer, the stepwise events that drive the leukemia, so those are driver mutations, and those that don't drive the leukemia but happen called passenger mm -hmm. uh, mutations. When we discovered comparing the leukemia stem cell and the normal blood-forming stem cell that CD47 was the name of a molecule overexpressed in the leukemia, we discovered that it was a don't-eat-me signal for macrophages, that the leukemia, and now we know every other cancer, elaborates that as part of its development, probably the last stage of its development. In fact, one disease called myelodysplastic syndrome, Wendy Pang and I showed every stem cell that you could find, normal blood-forming stem cell, has the mutation for myelodysplastic syndrome. That means that in that disease, those cells somehow beat out the normal blood-forming stem cell for bone marrow homes or niches. Mm -hmm but they don't turn on the don't eat me signal at that stage of the disease. And their disease is caused by some of their downstream cells, precursors of red cells or white cells or platelets, putting on an eat me signal. Mm -hmm. So an eat me signal unopposed by the don't eat me signal, you become anemic or neutropenic mm -hmm. or thrombocytopenic. But when they got AML, it was exactly the time that CD47 cured their myelodysplastic syndrome, but sadly, mm. now they're going to die of AML. So we went after CD47 and its step in the progression. When we got to therapies with humans, as compared to taking human cancers, human leukemias, and putting them in immune-deficient mice, we found that not all of our patients were cured. In fact, we got varying levels of responders, and that induced us to go back and say, are there any other don't eat me signals? So we devised a molecular test to look for it, looking at the human tumors and looking at the macrophages, and we've now found three other don't eat me signals. One of them, PDL1, is the champion for immunotherapies that reactivate T cells, or at least in mice, that's how it works. But when we looked carefully in human solid tumors, those that were PDL1 positive, don't eat me, and CD47 positive, ad additive, don't eat me, the macrophages that normally are reside next to them and would eat them, had the, con the uh, cognate receptors, we call it. So, so feed CD47, it's called signal-inducing receptor protein alpha, Super, or SERP yeah. alpha. Yeah, Serpa, right. For PDL1, it's PD1. Mm -hmm. And everybody says, well, obviously, the people who respond with various cancers, melanoma, lung cancer, are reactivating their T cells. But here we showed that it's also a blocking of eat me by the resident macrophages. So that told me that we should ask people and look at 
Did anybody prove in a responder human that the response that saved them was T cells? Mm -hmm. And the answer is nobody has ever looked. Mm -hmm. So you could start asking your own questions. Well, why would companies that get maybe 20, 30, 40% responders not want to look? And I'll let you answer that. <laughs> but there is something there. Mm -hmm. Then we found out that the major transplantation antigen called human leukocyte antigen, HLA, has a component that's constant on every one of its molecules called beta-2 microglobulin. Mm -hmm. And we found it's a don't eat me signal. Mm -hmm. In the evolution of most cancers, the cancer cells that lack class one are not susceptible to T cell killing. So many, many cancers that eventually grow out in your body lack class one. Mm -hmm. And what we showed is that the beta-2 microglobulin on class one also is a don't eat me signal. A funny, strange name called LILRB1 is on those macrophages. And we have a new one coming out, my postdoc, my graduate student will kill me if I say it. I'll just say another one mm -hmm. that is clearly dominant in breast cancer and ovarian mm -hmm. cancer in humans. So you can say, well, why didn't we see them when we put those human cancers into immune deficient mice? And it was kind of a luck of the draw. The first one we did, CD47 and SERP-alpha, the mouse strain we put it into, for some odd, unforeseen reason, the SERP-alpha in that mouse binds tightly to the CD47 from human. Mm. Other mouse strains don't. We would have missed it. But those other molecules, PD-1, LILRB, and the other one that I'm going to talk about, they don't bind. Mm -hmm. So even though they were don't eat me signals on the cancer, we, they weren't signaling in the mouse, so we didn't know that they played a role. So now we go back and we say, okay, in the clinical trials we're doing and that we're going to do going forward, we need to check whether they have other dominant don't eat me signals. Mm -hmm. And when we do the trial, stratify the patients, whether they had them or not, and see if the responders, as we suspect, will be in the group that have just CD47 as the dominant don't eat me signal. Mm. So that's one part. The other part, which um, is really why our clinical trials have moved forward, is the antibodies that have been used for cancer therapies like rituximab for lymphoma, Herceptin for breast cancer, all have the kind of antibody molecule whose back end, it's called the FC piece, binds to a macrophage receptor that eats. Mm -hmm. So when you give that antibody, whatever else it does, it creates a super eat me signal. And that's good enough for many patients to go into remission, but the don't eat me signals can countermand that. So we did a clinical trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently that anti-CD47 and rituximab, treating people who failed every other lymphoma therapy, rituximab, chemotherapy, a couple of them, CAR T cell therapies, highly popular, highly expensive, 
we get close to the same complete remission rate as many of the CAR T-cell trials. In fact, you have to look closely at our trial because when we include those who would get CAR T-cell therapies eligible for it, we do very well. When we exclude those with CAR T-cell therapies, we do okay, but less well. So the bottom line for the research and what we're looking at is we have a complex system by which cancer cells can evade the macrophage clearance, an early warning signal. Mm -hmm. And then we, and we can add to that many, many things. But when we said, well, just a second, are there any other disease-causing cells in the body that use the CD47 system? Because it's actually not a mutation that induces it. We showed, in fact, in a subset of breast cancers, inflammatory breast cancers, where we have immune cells coming in, the immune cells make a molecule, TNF-alpha, mm -hmm. for which the breast cancer has a receptor, TNF-alpha receptor, which activates a signal-transducing molecule called NF-kappa-B to go into the nucleus and turn on genes that TNF-alpha wants you to turn on. One of the regions that controls the level of expression of CD47 has that motif called the NF-kappa-B motif. Not all humans have it. It is a variant within the human population. So that again tells us, just a second, the immune system and the cancer's response to the immune system is complicated. But as we looked at now inflammatory conditions, we found that pulmonary fibrosis, scleroderma, liver fibrosis, kidney fibrosis, are all diseases of a population of fibroblasts whose precursor is dividing out of control and self-renewing. It is now not a cancer stem cell, but a fibroblast stem cell for the kind of fibroblasts in those organs. And sure enough, they turn on the don't eat me signal, CD47, and the other signal we discovered called calreticulin, which is the major eat me signal. Mm -hmm. And as I briefly said in the meeting yesterday, calreticulin is another absolutely unexpected finding. The calreticulin that decorates the surface of these dangerous fibroblasts or dangerous cancer cells to be an eat me signal doesn't have to be made by the fibroblast or the cancer. Activated macrophages, due to that inflammatory response that I was mentioning, for some reason, make and secrete calreticulin. To do that, they have to unhinge calreticulin from being held inside the cell, the macrophage. And so the inflammatory insult activates a system that causes a cleavage of that calreticulin between what keeps it inside the cell to now release it outside the cell. And it changes the idea of how the cancer cell or these inflammatory cells or other cells I'll mention are working. Because in those systems, it's not that the cancer cell 
had made calreticulin that goes on its surface, and then a variant comes up that dominates it with a don't eat me signal over the eat me signal, the cancer cell and the fibroblast and aging red cells and aging neutrophils convert the surface of the cell, the sugar or carbohydrate coating, and removes the sialic acids. And the calreticulin only binds to it if the sialic acids, the last sugar, is removed. So now we've unveiled a very, very surprising set of events. One of those, when we looked, came to me from somebody else. Nick Leeper, I should say, Gerlinda Wernig did the fibroblast, and she is hot on the trail of the combinations of antibodies to treat these horrible, incurable diseases like scleroderma, pulmonary fibrosis, liver failure due to fibrosis of the liver. And these are acquired diseases, right? All I mean, could you be, acquired. Could, they could be treated. Yeah, I mean, this is something that you could intervene and in, in absolutely. As soon as you get it. So Nick Leeper, a cardiovascular disease guy, called me up and he said, I've just done the gene expression and protein expression in atherosclerotic lesions, the ones that plug up the coronary arteries to cause myocardial infarction, those ones that plug up the carotid arteries to cause stroke, mm -hmm. the ones that where your artery bellies out and breaks open called aneurysm. In all of those cases, the smooth muscle cells that make it an artery instead of a vein are proliferating. And that proliferation, which is leading to a disease, causes inflammation, macrophages come in, but they don't take care of it. And they don't take care of it because it expresses don't the don't eat me signal. So we did a mouse study, published it in Nature. Nobody's read this paper. <laughs> we published it three years ago. So we showed in mice that if we take away a gene that could prevent the development of atherosclerosis called APOE, and we put them on the high fat diet, all of them would be dead of coronary, carotid, or abdominal aneurysm in a couple months of age. But if we start treating them right away with anti-CD47, they don't develop the disease. Wow. Now, you might think, what a cornucopia of therapies that you could Everything. do, right? <laughs> and you would say, Wiseman must be a snake oil salesman. I understand that. <laughs> but when you try to bring things through clinical trials, you are very limited in the numbers and kinds of clinical trials any company that's not a big pharma could afford. Mm. We were lucky that the early phase of the anti-CD47 development was funded by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. We obtained in 2009, a $20 million grant, not to form a company, but to form a consortium of Stanford medical faculty who would learn how to and do everything that a company would do to accomplish a phase one safety trial. 
we did with just that 20 million plus a couple million from the Ludwig Foundation, on time, four years, we filed initial new drug application to the FDA and the same to the United Kingdom MHRA. And they both commented it on how much science was in there and they're not used to having that much science for a new drug application. <laughs> so they let us go through without any questions. And that led to the trials. Well, sooner or later, when you get to phase two or phase three, the state agency cannot afford it. Those are tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And that constrains any single company from doing more than a few clinical trials in a few subject areas. So what I've been thinking about lately is what kinds of vehicles do we have that would permit joint trials, joint things, so that the scientists who made the discovery, like in our four years at Stanford, can contribute their knowledge of the system to not only develop therapies, but to inquire how broad this whole field is. How could you do that and still be in the commercial sector? I don't know yet. It's not easy. But I know that in all of the advising I've ever done for pharma or biotech, that there's a coterie of people, usually pretty high up in management, that the earlier they say it won't work, the more money they save and the higher they advance because they just saved the company 50 to 100 million bucks. So now you think about that. The function of a company is to make a profit. Those who help it not spend their money are advancing and then they are the decision makers. Many of them never made a decision that led to a product. And think of all the unrealized gains, right? Yes. Well, then when they say that nine out of 10 or whatever the number is fail in clinical trials, is that because of the plug gets pulled on a lot of them? Or is it because there's contrary data? It's not because of contrary data, usually. Mm -hmm. Usually they fail at the biotech phase and some all the way up at phase three. By the time they get to phase two or phase three, they no longer have the discoverer of the field involved. So it's a business In fact, they want to get rid of the discoverer because oh, they're a pain in the ass, <laughs> right? So it's a business decision and you can't fault it. We have no other mechanism of treating people. The function of a company is to make a profit. What most of us don't understand is that's the only function. Right. If they could turn into a bank and make the money a bank, they would do it right away. Right. Many pharmaceutical companies are like banks, not making discoveries, not paying for the training of the people they hire who are in their faculty, you know, in their uh, like uh, staff. Yeah. They're not doing any of that. Yeah. But they are the gatekeepers. So I think most things that could impact our lives and change medicine don't happen because of our structure of saying at the universities, we're ivory towers, we're not gonna think about translation. Mm -hmm. Companies saying, we're in it for money. We'll say a lot of stuff, but we're in it for money. Yeah. And our decisions are about money. Yeah. 
So that valley of death is in between. Go ahead. You mentioned that the that there's no alternative and it's the best. It's like uh, democracy. It's not great. It's just that everything else is worse. But that's not for lack of trying on your part. I mean, you were one of the founding. You know, I guess you promoted. And and it was a major influence in promulgating Prop 71, which led to CERM. So, like clearly, it's it's isn't you know your first rodeo. You you recognize this, I think, long ago, and that was part of the impetus in trying to find an alternative mechanism. And I think a, a lot of people would say that that's had a real positive impact in California. Would you say, you know, that it's realized it's it's lived up to your vision, the vision that you had for it when you were first, you know, instituting the kind of architecture? Yeah, it has largely done that. So I helped co-write it with a group of people, Larry Goldstein, especially Bob Klein and others. And I decided to put in there two or three things that I knew were barriers to moving forward. If I apply for an NIH grant, which I did for CD47 and eventually the therapy, I'll be rejected most of the time. And I'm rejected by people who are not experts in the field. So somewhere around the mid 80s to the beginning 1990s, for some reason, the study sections that do peer review at the NIH move from going only for experts mm -hmm. to going for peers. Now, if you say top to bottom peers, it's mainly people who never made a discovery. And there was and always has been an impetus, kind of a populist impetus, so that the people in the study section don't just follow the big names or people with influence and power. So an impetus has been ignore the track record of the person who applied. Now, that's not completely true. But you got a perfect storm. You got people who've never made a discovery making a decision on whether the grant as written will work. And they so, look at Irv Weiss and they say, he's got plenty of money. Well, already. it could be that <laughs> or it could be something else. I know this. No grant that I wrote, no grant that Dave Baltimore ever wrote or Harold Varmus or any of the great people you know do they do what they say they're going to do exactly like they say they're going to do it? So if you have a group who's only judging, will this grant work? Even if they were great people, they would have to say, you know, it's not going to work so much. So in response to that, I put into Prop 71, it's part of the law that only expert review should be considered and track record Recent track record should be part of it. That's in the law. A second part is the agency should be able to pick up in that valley of death. Once a discovery looks pretty good and animal proof of principle to cover from that phase through phase one of clinical trial or even for some people phase two, the agency could fund selected ones. Mm -hmm. That's in the law, and largely they do good jobs, but they also don't always pick experts. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit. The third part that I thought was essential 
goes back to 1994. 1994, I was president of the American Association of Immunologists, and I used my position as a bully pulpit. So we put out a newsletter every quarter. And one of the quarters, I said, by Dole Act, B-A-Y-H, and Dole for Birch by Robert Dole, gave to the universities the right not only to license NIH-funded discoveries at the university, but not to give any money back to NIH, so-called freedom. So I said, that's crazy, because if the funders of the education and the training and the research don't get money back when it actually does lead to a product that's a therapeutic and makes somebody a lot of money. That's crazy. So I said that, and I put that in Prop 71, that the agency, one way or another, should be able to share in the royalty income that eventually comes out. Now, there's a long time between a discovery and royalty, so you won't know how big that is for a long, long time. But a lot of people don't like that. They say, well, maybe the government or California Institute of Regenerative Medicine will be incented to influence who gets the license. That's not in there. It's only the university that still decides the quality of the potential licensees to get it. I hope it stays in. I hope that the money that comes in specifically makes California Institute of Regenerative Medicine evergreen. I hope that the US Congress and other legislative bodies starts to understand you've got to link the discoveries and the profits that come to them at the nonprofit level to somebody who can still fund the research, even if somebody, because of derivative mortgages, just crashed the whole economy, right? Right, right. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. That, that, does that evergreen idea, is that how it's built in, that the, any, any royalties they feed back directly into CIRM, or is it the California Well, it economy? still goes to California, mm -hmm. and I hope they put it to go back to CIRM. Well, either way, I think it's an incentive to renew. And, and that's the question with the CIRM now. I, it was born out of this real hostile climate towards stem cells. I think a lot of the, the reason why people bought in, in the public generally, is because of all the hope and optimism about stem cells. They said, we need to fund this. And, you know, the situation has changed now. But I think the CIRM has also pivoted and shifted their focus to much more translational. And I think it's, you know, created a, a nice, strong um, surge there. But the question is, do we need the CIRM and, and, and organizations like it anymore, given IPSLs uh, as the, the mandate shifted? Not. We absolutely need it because those things I just told you are unique to CIRM. Expert review, sharing of the incentive, the ability to step in to that valley of death between discovery and therapy and make sure that those who made the discovery form clinical and preclinical and tox and regulatory teams that go all the way through and make sure it gets there. NIH doesn't do that. IPS cells won't do that. Right. You need to have that going forward. So it's, yeah, 
the NIH isn't doing it. Pharma's not doing it. We need something. Right. So you may remember in 2001, George W. Bush, in response to a National Academy of Sciences, Medicine, Engineering panel that I headed, to talk about transferring nucleus from an adult cell into an enucleated egg, he said, the U.S. ain't going to fund that research anymore. In fact, they ain't going to fund any embryonic stem cell line made from excess blastocysts in IVF clinics. It'll Sorry. do the old ones, but not the new ones. So I got calls from many people with diabetic kids, Alzheimer's parents, and so on. Does that affect us? I said, absolutely, because it closes lines of research that we could follow, and a subset of which, because you can follow it, may work out to treat these diseases. We are setting up for clinical trials right now with antibody conditioning of hosts. All came from CERN. And amongst the ones we already have, the animal proof of principle is diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and lupus. And we can transplant pure stem cells that don't have T cells with them, that bone marrow and mobilized blood have, which make the therapy very dangerous. And the chemotherapy that threatens the life. So we're, in, we're moving into clinical trials to do that. Would not have happened if we didn't have that sustained ability via CIRM to do it. So you could say, well, George W was the impetus of the political movement that led to it. Well, if you read The Atlantic today, Joe Grogan working for Mick Mulvaney and sitting next to Trump in all of their council meetings on his own against the advice of the head and the deputy heads of Health and Human Services and enacted a ban on the use of human fetal tissues in research, and specifically closed a laboratory funded by NIH at UC San Francisco that was doing all of the AIDS research for a whole large part of the country, and another laboratory at the Rocky Mountain Lab in Hamilton, Montana, that was doing that research. They specifically closed that, no chance of coming out. Despite the deputy head of HHS, Brett, Admiral Brett Giroir, saying at a meeting we all participated in in December, fetal tissue research clearly is the gold standard if we want to understand the response to HIV or other human-specific infections. We use that to isolate blood-forming stem cells. I showed in my talk yesterday. It is also used to be able to see what is the human immune response that's normal and which is the one that's diabetic and which is the one that's lupus? There's no other way unless you want to irradiate people in order to find out what cell is the stem cell for the next part of the um, uh, stem cell discovery and clinical translation. So this is the new battleground, do you think, with the whole political climate and Supreme Court and abortion is actually in question again now? It's, it's probably directly derivative. I mean, this is about abortion, right? Fetal tissue research is about abortion. Do you think that Certainly we're is. at risk of, you know, 
closing down that line of research or is this well it's already this? happened from nih it is oh, it's the trump funding. policy really? has put a ban on funding oh my from the nih this kind of research I'm and i haven't heard about that nobody's heard noise. about it because the noise coming out of washington now mm -hmm. is so intense so frequent Nobody's paying attention. So the Atlantic article is a pretty good article. I didn't realize it was one person, a political maneuvering person, Joe Grogan, who on his own and against the advice of the HHS and the head of NIAD and so on, enforced the ban. I just want to uh, shift gears for a minute here. Uh, we talked, we had the pleasure of talking to John Gurdon. You know, he famously was not the best student. And I don't know if everybody knows this too, but you weren't an exceptional student by your own- Not even uh, close. <laughs> um, but, you know, that didn't stop you. In fact, I feel like, um, I don't know if it drove you, but it certainly didn't impede you at all from getting a very, very early start in high school on the work pretty much that you're doing now. Do you think, is there anything to the idea that you know, not being an exceptional student is, you know, part and parcel of some of the great contributors out there that they can't really fit into the knowledge base as it's been, you know, preordained and they're trying to discover on their own or you think it's just everybody's an individual? I know you can only speak for yourself, but have you noted well, that? Well, I've trainees? talked to lots of people mm -hmm. about this. I went to Great Falls, Montana High School. We had 400 in our graduating class. It was the only high school in the town, and it served everybody in the town. And still, I couldn't get better than a B plus, never made the top 10%, never made the honor roll. And it was honest that I couldn't make it. I just, for whatever reason, didn't have the discipline or the desire to memorize everything. I couldn't see where it was going. But when I got a chance to work in a lab, and found out that I could actually think and propose experiments based on what others had done or an idea I had, that was way different. So I tested that a few times, that notion. About 25 or 30 years ago, at Stanford Medical School, I was co-head of the Admissions Policy Committee for the Medical School, and at that time, we felt that there was a joint mission. Of course, you had to admit those people who you thought could become sane and caring doctors. That's hard to judge. I don't think any conversation gives that to you. I don't think there's a test for it. I think we're just fooling ourselves that we can judge that. But the other part was that they had shown at least before they applied to medical school, whether it was college and high school or college alone, outside of classroom scholarship or research. Mm -hmm. So we said, okay, that looks good, dual goals. Let's, let's figure out how we can get those people in. How can we do it? So I said, why don't we look at the top 50 MDs on our faculty back then 25, 30 years ago? And we asked them three questions. How did you do on grades when you applied to medical school? What kind of percentile were you? If you took the medical college admissions test, what kind of percentile? And third, was anything else important? 
only a minority of our most eminent people would have passed the grade barrier that the computer took out. Slightly better, but not much for MCATs, but 46 out of the 50 had done significant scholarship. Uh, one of them now dead, uh, Bob Shimke did a philosophy honors thesis as an undergraduate, but most of us found a way to do research. The Jackson Labs in Maine have a summer program for high school students. Cold Spring Harbor has a summer. And after I was the first student in this little lab in Great Falls, Montana, it's had a summer program ever since. And many people now on faculties and heads of things came out of it. So I once asked President Hennessy at Stanford, I said, how come we devote so much time to finding out the grade point average? When I don't think it is the best predictor of success. And he was frank, he said, well, if you knew how many tens of thousands of applications we get, we have to have a screening tool. So my only suggestion, and we're gonna try that in the medical school again this year, is to try to bring into the process experts in the particular field that the undergraduate claims they were in to ask questions about how they did in the field. Now, anybody could write down, I did this, and they could be from an eminent lab where they were a technician. But you got 10 minutes of questioning, and you know right away if they can think like a scientist and think about an experiment and so on. We did that for the next year after that admissions policy committee 30 years ago. Arthur Kornberg and I went on the admissions committee and I found amazingly that everybody had checked off the box that, oh yeah, I did research. Yeah. Oh yeah, I shadowed doctors. Oh yeah, I worked in the emergency room. And I took it as an opportunity. So I asked a bunch of the students I was interviewing for an hour each, oh, you did? Emergency room, oh, it was fantastic. I learned so much. You know, the doctors and the nurses and the patients and the whole thing. I said, so what would you think when somebody comes in with chest pain? What's the mechanism? What's going on? Most of them, it was a blank because they had just checked off the boxes. So if you're highly disciplined and you devote yourself to memorizing everything in classes, you'll get the straight A's. And those who get the straight A's in high school get to the best colleges, yeah. get to the best medical schools, get so, the most choice residencies. So we have a continuum of memorizers who are great as doctors because they've memorized everything that could happen and they can apply it. I'm not saying that. But if you're in Wall Street or a venture capital firm or you're trying to figure out, will this therapeutic coming from this discovery work they're the last person you should ask because they've never understood or tried to be involved in discovery. Like you said, maybe now we have a whole generation of doctors who've been trained in that climate and they're the leaders. And so when they're deciding who the next generation, they say, well, I'm high achieving, I had good grades. So- uh, And they'll say to the company, just like that executive, it won't work. Yeah. Yeah. Without any basis. And who else are they going to listen to? But it's the yeah. chief at Stanford, right? Yeah. But uh, you know, it's worse to me. It, it, it makes me think that all these kids who might be 
they're spending so much time drilling. You know what I mean? When yeah. they might be having a better time. So we have to expand the opportunities, even as early as high school, for those who want to do science to get into science labs in their region. Here's an idea. If you had a science track where there was a separate application that we considered in a separate pool where you had to have legit yeah. qualifications, I feel like, you know what you get at least? You get a lot of applicants. They're like, you know what? I might not be that competitive on the medical track, but maybe I could try the scientist track. I could tell you, everyone who ever interns in my lab, first day I say, tell me the truth. Do you care about science? Do you mm. want to be in science or do you want to be a doctor? Right. Do you want to be a doctor? That's great. Yes. I'm going to help you be a doctor, but don't, you you got know, it. don't take me down this path where I'm invested in making a scientist and then I lose you. you know? yeah. So uh, I feel that. I really feel that. And you know, this, this year, the whole idea at the conference, and you know, it's not the first year that there's been a bit of an emphasis, but it's really been showcased this year, the youth and the young scientists. Um, do you think... I mean, I'm sure you're, you're on board. Do you think it, it's been successful? And, and, and how do you think that's gonna uh, move our, our change, the way the, 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 these scientists you know, resonate? Yeah, well, I think first, um, that it is spectacular, many of the talks that I've heard at this meeting by young people. It gives me real comfort to realize that there is a next generation coming up. Although I want to say, being 79, almost 80, I'm not an ageist. So every once in a while, they let us talk as well. Yeah. So, so long as you don't go overboard, right. you know, we are privileged in the United States. I'm 79. I have several grants. I uh, had to an institute in the center. I am active with students and medical students and so on. I teach and so on. I can still do it. But if I were in Japan or Europe, 15 years ago, I would have been kicked out. Mm -hmm. No matter what your level right. of productivity was. So it, it, it reminds you that these societal things where we have an age at which you change, like Social Security, Medicare, so on. They were invented in the 30s, when the average lifespan might have been 65 to 70. But now the average lifespan is in the 80s. So now you have people who were engaged, had a productive life, not all of them kept with it. A lot of people drop out on their way, and that's okay. But you have a group that you suddenly shut down and there is no vehicle for most of them to be able to teach, do research, advise uh, that, that would be so valuable for society. Along those lines, do you think you've gotten better as a scientist? Even are you still getting better as a scientist at this Well, point? at least I'm... At, making discoveries at about the same rate I did in my 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, yeah, and that's notable, I think, because you've been on, really been more, I mean, not to age you, but you said it first, you've been more on the front half of stem cells. You know, you were one of the architects of hematopoiesis, which to this day is really the gold standard for stem cell therapy that works, right? Yeah. And so you've seen the other half now where it's all the pluripotent cells and the beginning in the kernel that now is getting into the clinic. 
you know, slowly and I think conservatively uh, for the right reasons. But w are you at all surprised, given how quickly and how robust the hematopoietic transplant system, um, how well it works and how not easy, but how it, it how you were able to make it work? Are you surprised or frustrated with how challenging it's been or the roadblocks in place for applying pluripotent stem cell derived therapies? Let me preface it by saying, we discovered the mass blood forming stem cell in 1988. Started a company, because they wanted it off campus, to isolate the human stem cell, which we discovered in 91, early 92. Did a clinical trial from 96 to 98. Women with metastatic breast cancer who were being treated at the time with bone marrow or mobilized blood, their own, to enable them to get even higher dose chemotherapy. The founding of the field of hematopoietic cell or bone marrow transplant was to increase the dose of chemotherapy with each increase and each new drug added, you kill more and more of the cancer cells in the body. But eventually you run up against the limit of the blood forming system, which you kill also. So many people were called bone marrow transplanters. I have to note with some cynicism that they all changed their name to stem cell transplanters in 1992. <laughs> Not one of them were transplanting pure stem cells. Right. In our paper published now seven years ago, the follow-up of women with metastatic breast cancer that we either rescued with mobilized blood, the standard of care, over 50% and probably much higher percent of them had cancer cells in the mobilized blood. Yeah. So they were getting the cancer after they went right next to death or cancer-free stem cells. We published. The women who got mobilized blood, their median survival was 26 months, the same as it was before that therapy, the same as it is today. All dead by 10, 11, 12 years. The women who got cancer-free stem cells, the median survival was 10 years. One third of them are alive without disease, now 21 to 23 years later. That's not a therapy. That's a cure. Part of it, it's a cure. And it's incredible. Because even those who was 10 years instead of two years probably had a few thousand cancer cells left in the body that other therapies by now would take care of. But our company was bought by a large company that when they got a pill delivered by mouth, advertised by their whole teams that go out to doctors, they quietly dropped it. They didn't call me up to say, Irv, better take this back. We're not going to do it. And they owned they it. They dropped it. They bought it and they... they so I got it out oh, in various ways okay. and it took a long time. And I put it at Stanford in the not-for-profit section mm -hmm. so that any quote, bone marrow transplanter could opt to do pure blood forming stem cell transplant. They could bring that forward to the FDA and to the institutional review boards to do it. And I believe it's taken till now to get the first kid 
with severe combined immune conditioning and our antibody depletion of diseased blood-forming stem cells to get a pure stem cell transplant. I don't think it's happened, but it might have happened. So that's why I told you that story about the memorizers who become the best pre-meds, the best doctors, because when I tried to get it going, within a week of a trial we were gonna do at MD Anderson Hospital for those same metastatic breast cancer patients in the early 2000s, two doctors when asked, senior doctors, when asked, should we go forward with this? They said, no, it won't work. Now they had read the papers about mobilized blood. And so it was shut down. We could have had that since 2004. 50,000 women a year in the US get to the point of metastatic breast cancer. If you cured a third of them, and I'm not gonna say it would, that's 15,000 at least a year for 15 years. 225,000 women in the US alone died when they might have lived because, because of a business decision and because of these educated doctors who thought they understood and could say it won't work. I think you'll agree that, I mean, I don't know, maybe you won't, but I would say I'm pretty cynical about it. It doesn't seem like much is changing. It seems like the biotech and pharma industry still has a stranglehold. But um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. In this meeting, you see a lot of really impressive stuff, like you said, that makes me think that maybe we're like at a tipping point. Are we on the cusp of, of real, you know, viable therapeutic applications? Do, do you, what would be your prediction for the next, uh, you know, 10 years down the road in the meeting? I, don't, I hate the five to 10 years thing, but sure. like just within the sphere, do you think that, that, that will, will be, will, because it seems like the pace is accelerating. Are yeah. you, are you optimistic? Yeah. So first I'll say, now that I know, especially from my association with Bob Klein and CIRM, or the fund funding, that you need patient advocates to be with you. If you don't have those life stories of people with incurable diseases are gonna die with that disease, you can't get the story out. Mm -hmm. So I'm encouraged by that. I actually believe that our combination antibody therapy from knowing about leukemia stem cells, normal stem cells, is gonna broaden. Our own engraftment of purified stem cells following all antibody conditioning is a platform for every iPS cell derived brain stem cell, liver stem cell, lung stem cell, because you still have to immunosuppress. Nobody's gonna make a business, at least today, of taking your skin, making an iPS cell, generating what you need, say a liver stem cell or a blood forming stem cell, because that's huge cost right now. Things can come down, but right now that's huge cost. So I am optimistic that we, by clearing the way of getting rid of cytotoxic drugs for regenerative medicine, blood forming stem cell therapy, that induces immunological tolerance for any other cell or organ from that blood forming stem cell. And in about 15 minutes, my former student Kyle Lowe will show how embryonic stem cells can actually make transplantable blood forming stem cells. So I am 
deeply enthusiastic, but I know all of the political things that will happen on the way, and so it won't happen anywhere close as fast as, as I want. But you made the caution, and it's a great caution. Nobody should go out, and we didn't go out in 2004, and say, if you fund this, we'll cure your disease in five years. It's unlikely we'll cure their disease in their lifetime. Because if you go backward from an approved product, it's at least three years phase three, at least three years phase two, at least three years phase one, before that preclinical proof of principle and talks and so on, and before that a discovery. So CIRM is funding discoveries, and they still will fund discoveries, but if they can add on, maybe we can get it to a time that our children and grandchildren won't have these incurable diseases. I love to hear that. That's a real answer. <laughs> um, just, I know your, uh, your student is about to blow up the world, so I'm gonna let you go. But just one final piece of advice uh, for the young scientists. This conference is about young scientists, and you, I think they would appreciate uh, what you have to say. You know, everyone has to take their own path, but anything you could tell these people. Sure, the most important thing is, there are many, many people out there who want to pull you down. They could be your academic colleagues. They could be the reviewers of your papers. They could be the reviewers uh, of your grants. And they all have their own reasons and they all justify their own reasons. But if you, with a habit of self-criticism, believe that what you've discovered is potentially important, you should carry it forward no matter what. And then you have to recognize what the barriers are and start dealing with those mainly societal barriers and jealousy barriers, you know, and authority power barriers. And then you can make it. And I think that as the discoveries fold in, and especially, just to be honest, if the money doesn't go just to the companies and to the universities and to the inventors, but to a real agency that continues to fund this groundbreaking research and the evading the valley of death that usually happens, I think it's going to be much, much better. All right, great parting words. Thank you so much for right. joining us, Dr. Weissman. This has been a real pleasure. Good. Fun to talk. That brings us to the very end of our special ISSCR mini-series. We hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Let us know what you think by emailing us at info at stemcellpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit us on Twitter at stemcellpodcast to vote for who you think gave the best one-minute breakdown of their research. We're going to be back just next week with an interview. And for now, it's so long with the mini-series, but we're going to come up with a better idea and give you something good in between weeks in the future, guys. Stay tuned and thanks for joining us.